Let me relate a story. Uh, we know Jesus was Jewish. And I didn't talk about tzitzits yet. Tzitzits are the tassels that the priest would wear or the king would wear. And usually when I talk about tzitzits, I talk about David and uh, uh, Saul. When David was fleeing from Saul, he went to the, to the coast of, of En Gedi. And I didn't show you En Gedi, and I apologize for that. But there, when Saul went into the, the cave to relieve himself, he fell asleep. And David sneaks up on him, and he cuts off the tassel, the corner of his robe. Now, these tzitzits are a reason for these four tzitzits. It's called tzitziot. Say tzitzit. Spelled T-I-Z-T-T-I-Z-T. Zitzit. 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 They have five, four spaces and five knots. Four spaces, they think the four mothers of the patriarchs, the five spaces, the five books of Moses. And then there's eight strands, and there's a blue strand in here. And I'm not sure what they all stand for, and I didn't study up on it enough that I can remember exactly. But these zitzis in the four corners, and the other thing that's God is so unique and so interesting. Because he told the, the priest to make a round robe, and then he says, put tzitzit in each corner of the robe in the four corners of the robe. How do you put tzitzit in a corner of a robe if it's a round robe? Well, you can kind of do it, but anyhow. These tzitzits, the numerical value of these tzitzits, the four, five knots, the four spaces, the eight strands, times four, makes 613. So if you're wearing a tzitzit, you say you're fulfilling the commandments of God. That's your desire is to fulfill the commandment of God. You're a good king. You're a good priest. All priests would wear this. So did Jesus wear this? Do you think Jesus wore tzitzit at all? Okay, we guess he did. I say he did. Now, maybe when I get to heaven I have to be reproved and he said, no, I didn't, but I would not imagine Jesus not wearing tzitzit at that time because Jesus was fulfilling the whole law. And I have, let me give you some proof text for that. The reason I believe that is because they say that the, the, uh, the rabbis said that when the, the Messiah comes, you will find healing in his wings. And, and his wings, and the other interpretation for tzitzit is wings. You will find healing in his wings. So do we have a proof that he had tzitzits? Well, we was, he was walking along one day, and the crowd was pressing him. And Jairus had just come and said, my daughter is lying sick. Will you come and heal her? And sure, so Jesus follows, starts following Jairus. And all of a sudden, he stops. And he said, somebody touched me. And the disciples said, what do you mean somebody touched you? They've been touching you all day. Yeah, but this was somebody different. I felt virtue leave me. And Matthew says, we know the story, the woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years came up and touched the hem, this is hem, of his garment. It could also be this, but the, all scholars say that it is this. This is the hem of his garment. This is the true hem of his garment. And as soon as she touched it, she was healed. Faith. Can you imagine? She was not allowed to be there. If you were, had an issue of blood or anything, that you were cut or anything like that, you were unclean and could not be mingling with the people. That, you were outside the camp, supposed to be. So she disguised herself. And that's why she was, I think she was trembling. 
And Jesus looked around and imagine, imagine being that woman. Jesus looked around with compassion in his eyes and he says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. What a blessing. So that should be our faith. We should not be afraid to press in. Actually, in the Jewish world, if you don't press into them, you're just a weakling. You're not, you're a jelly backbone person if you can't push in. And I've learned to push in. Learned to push into the Jewish people, and they love it. And you become their friend. And they know it. They know it by walking past you that you're not afraid of them. They, it's amazing. I, I have, I've learned slowly, and I'm growing into that, Vernon, my, my fellow minister, he had an experience when he was there. And it was, he didn't do right, he said, but it was an experience that helped him really grow. And it connected him with those people like never before. He was walking down the sidewalk. And this young guy was coming towards him. And, and Vernon's pretty hefty, you know, 230 pounds or so. And this, this young skinny guy was coming right towards him. And so he, he decided, Vernon decided, you know, I'm just not going to go out of his way this time. This time he's going to have to go out out of my way and you'd always sidestep him and he didn't and he comes and he just walks right into him and Vernon was ready for it and the guy just bounces off of him onto the sidewalk and and Vernon felt really bad and he he was he was repenting all his way his walk to school that morning but he said something inside of me changed that moment and he said from there on he could connect with those people like never before because they knew he was not afraid of them, and they can feel it. It's like a horse. When you're afraid of a horse or an animal, they know it immediately. Those people can too. And the more I push into their lives, the more I can now confer with them back and forth. It is exciting. And I think we should be more like that in our Christian world. I don't know that we need to be legalistic and dogmatic always about our point, but I'm saying we can push in. How do you come up with that? Where did you come up with that conclusion? How can we... That's things we should be doing... And I think Jesus taught that. So I love this story about this woman touching the hem of his garment. She was made clean. And I like to think it was the first time that she could go to Passover that year. And then Jesus was crucified. So imagine that woman being blessed by Jesus. She found Jesus. She was healed. And that year she went to Passover for the first time in 12 years. And then she finds Jesus on the cross. I don't know if it happened or not. But I think it likely, very likely could have happened that she was there. So as we look down, as we were looking over the Sea of Galilee, this was to the west, the sunset over the Sea of Galilee. Let's go on. This is Mount Arbel. I'll just talk quickly about this as we usually hike up this mountain. But I want to give you this overview. This is looking down onto the Sea of Galilee here, and then the plains. Plains of the Gennesaret plains are here. Like up here, I think I might have an arrow here where Capernaum's at, up there. And that's where Jesus spent most of his time in this region right here. And we'll look more of his look at more of his stories, but we got to keep moving. And we hike back down. So if you get you go with us to Israel, you will probably hike this. It's a it's a pretty steep hike, but this is the road. We got to remember this is probably the road that Jesus went. And the, the the scholars think they often went up here to pray. I like to think this is where Jesus was praying when the disciples were out on the sea, and we'll take a look at that in a little bit. But this is the road that goes up. You can go up or down this road here. But this is the road. This is the, the boat. They, they found this boat right along the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and they, they don't know. They, they, almost, they, they think they can date it back to Jesus' time. 
At least the size of the boat is the boat that would have been like Jesus was using when they were out in the boat. Maybe a 16-foot boat or so. I think I have a picture here of a boat out fishing. Now, this is maybe a little smaller boat, but they were very low in the water. And so you can imagine we have 12 disciples in here and Jesus in this boat and the storm comes up. It doesn't look very safe out there. And this, this Sea of Galilee, can, it can be a, a ruckus in a hurry out there. And so we have the story of they were out in the boat and they didn't make any headways. Jesus was up on the mountain somewhere, maybe Mount Arbel, watching them. And he says at the fourth watch of the night, just before daybreak, Jesus comes walking on the water. And he's, he's walking on the water like he's going to walk right past them. And they see him. And Mark actually says he was walking. I think it's Mark that says he was walking. He was going to go right past them. But they see him and they thought it was a ghost. And we know the story. And the one, one of the writers says when, when they saw him, they, they cried out to him. And Jesus said, it is I, don't be afraid. And then G Peter said, if it's you, then ask me to come to me, come to you. So Jesus said, come. And Peter starts out on the water. Now, I don't, do you know, I, I don't know if Peter thought he could walk on water or not. So why in the world would Peter want to walk out to the, or try to think he could walk out to Jesus? He knows that people can't walk on water. Or does he? Or does he not? And again, why did Peter, why did not John or James? And we always accuse Peter of being impetuous. And I had a psychologist woman with me this last time. She's a, she's a beachy woman from, from joined the beachy church down in, in Kentucky somewhere, and I had a lot of fun with her because, no, Peter was an impetuous Peter, and he had, uh, uh, he had a, a, an attention deficit, and, and I was really, we really had a blast. I, did, I said, I don't believe you, but it's okay if you believe that way. Peter was the oldest. Peter had to set the standard. That's, they have, we call it a pecking order. If Peter doesn't respond, nobody does. Now, I know he was also outspoken in a sense, but I give him a lot of room he was also the one that had to speak up or everybody sits there. So he, he gets out of the boat and starts walking. Why, why did he want so much to walk on water? What do you think is the reason he wanted so much to walk on water? His rabbi was doing it. Ah, his rabbi was doing it. He wanted to be like his rabbi. So I'd love to walk on water sometime. Well, I can when I have skis on my feet, but I can't outside of that too well. But wouldn't it be exciting that we'd be walking on water with our rabbi? So why did he go down? He saw the lake, boisterous. He saw the, lake was, the water was boisterous. You think that's what took him down? It was boisterous before he went out. He took his eyes off of Jesus. You think that was really the problem? Fearful. He was fearful. I can't do this. Isn't that what we often say? Oh, I can't do that. You know what I taught our children? I said, can't died a long time ago. Put it, to your, put it to your mind. You can do almost anything you want to. It better be correct. I think Peter did, I can't do this. And I know he took his eyes. I think all those others are valid as well. And so we are. If we're fearful and unbelieving, this is what happens. We'll sink. And then we got to get back up again. And then he's in the storm, another storm he talks about. They're going across the sea. He's lying in the stern of the boat. And the disciples are scared out of their mind. And we talked about that the other night. And I love this story, the story in Matthew and also in Mark and Luke, 
where he comes across, and then as he comes across, he finds this demonic man comes out towards him. And this is on the Decapolis side. Remember I talked to you about the Decapolis, the pagan, where they worship, where they worship paganism? He comes there, and this, this man with legions of devils comes out. We know the story. Let me just finish, or the end of that story, he said he sat in his right ma- mind, Luke, I mean, Mark writes this, he sat at the feet of Jesus in his right mind and fully clothed, cleaned up when the townspeople came out. Did you ever notice who got out of the boat when they got on the other side? Read it. I always thought the disciples all got out of the boat. I don't think the disciples got out of the boat. Only Jesus got out of the boat if you read that. It, it looks that way anyway. And isn't that with us so often? We don't want to get out of the boat. This is pagan country. It seems they were either out of the boat and scampered right back in when the man came out with the legions of devils, or they were never out of the boat. I don't think they were ever out of the boat. And of course, we know what happens with those pigs there. But the real story is what happened later. Jesus said, no, you can't come with me, but go back and tell your family what great mercy the Lord has shown to you today and how gracious he's been to you. Did the man do it? Absolutely. When Jesus comes back, they asked Jesus to leave that time. Jesus comes back sometime later, and the whole Decapolis, it says, came, and they thronged Jesus, and they begged him to stay longer because of one man sharing the story. One man. One man sharing the story. Your story is as valid as that man. If you found Jesus, your story and been healed, you are as valid a storyteller as he was. Are you changing the world around you like he did? One man. And God will give you that. So we know he calms the sea because he's God. And they marvel. We need to move on. There's the demonic man. Let's go up to Caesarea Philippi and then down to Jerusalem really quick here. He took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. Why? I'm not exactly sure. More than that the, the rabbis before Jesus' time said when Jesus comes, he's going to be greater than Baal or Pan, the god Pan. So here is Caesarea Philippi. This hole is what they call the gates of hell. And right beside there is a niche where the goddess Pan was in, or the god Pan was in. So Jesus, it says, he brings him to the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answered, you might be John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this profound, profound answer, gives this profound answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus comes back to him and says, Simon Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my father which is in heaven revealed this unto you. Let me get all these words correct here. And thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love this picture. This was dead stuff going on here. This was unbelievable ungodliness going on at this place. I don't know if he took his disciples exactly here or not, but I think he was trying to make an impression of what goes on here, and we have what is greater than that. The gates of hell, this thing to the left here, which is the, the pan god would the pan the god pan would come up every spring and fertilize all the land. It was a goddess of or a god of fertility, which all those gods were. And Jesus said, I am greater, he was saying I'm greater than that. 
Peter made that confession. But what I, excuse me, what I like here is that the gates of hell, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, this garbage, will not stand in the way of my church. I love that. So who's breaking down who? I think we should be out there breaking down the strongholds of the devil. See, we always like it inside these four walls. It feels safe in here. We lock the doors. We don't let the devil in. And it's, that's okay. I'm not disagreeing with that. But I think what Jesus is saying, go out and conquer. Go make disciples. Go change the world. And Mark, I love how Mark puts it. Mark puts it, and he's talking, and he turns to the crowd. So he must be somewhere where there's a crowd of people. And he tells the crowd, whoever's willing to lose his life will save it. And I can almost see these disciples, they're going to kill us. This is a pagan place. And Peter, and then he said he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And we know what Peter said, no, this is not going to happen. We're going to protect you. And Jesus said to Satan, get thee behind me. You don't understand the things that I'm saying here yet. And then Jesus set his face like flint to go down south, to go down to Jerusalem and to meet the devil head on. And we'll take a look at that. Here you can see the artist rendering of this place of Caesarea Philippi. I think this was very foundational for those disciples because if I could take you over to Asia Minor for just a glimpse, this was a picnic compared to Asia Minor where the Greek world was. If you ever get to go to study in Asia Minor, and we're trying to put actually a trip together, I'd love to take every one of our pastors or teachers along that I could take along over there. It is unbelievable how Paul changed this world, how the disciples changed the world when they went there. Timothy, how he was a disciple. It's unreal, brothers and sisters. We have a picnic where we're at yet than what was there. And I think God laid the, Jesus laid the foundation with those disciples. And he promised them, and he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I will give you, I will entrust you with my word to make decisions. He does us as well. He gives us the keys of the kingdom, meaning you can bind and loose what you think is correct, but we better be careful that it's bound and loosed in heaven. We better have that connection. Because he entrusts us with his word. Amazing. And we can go conquer anything that we want because he is greater that is in us. Here's the Jordan River. I don't know if you thought the Jordan River was the Mississippi or not, but here's the Jordan River. And we always go to a place like this. This was in 2000. We were there. We go into the water and we have a session in the water. Everybody goes into the water. Now, some people don't like it, but we go in anyway. You just go in, and we have a session standing in the water. It's a moving moment. I'll tell you, it's probably one of the precious times that we always have in Israel when we're there, thinking about Jesus. Let's head on south. This is the Jordan Valley. We'll just quickly move south. This is the valley again, beautiful green Jordan Valley. Pictures of the Jordan. I want to take you here really quick and talk about Alexander the Great. I said I would a little bit. I'll insert about five minutes. We're and a race. This is the city of Bet Shane. And Bet Shane was one of the Decapolis cities. It was on the west side of the Jordan River. It's the only one there. It is an amazing place because when you, I, I should have a picture of Insula. I, I closed, was it Friday night? I think I closed, it was an Insula and I didn't talk about it and I was going to talk about it and I, I just 
moved it out. An insula is not set up with streets. It's just a jumble of houses. An insula is where the father builds his house and the son that takes a bride puts a, an addition onto the house, an addition, addition, addition onto the house. And so the, you have a courtyard with a bunch of rooms on a house. It's the grandfather, the uncles, the aunts, they're all there, plus your children, and, and becomes bigger. And that often is what a city was. So now imagine going from there to here. And this is Betshane, this is a Hellenistic city, a city that Alexander the Great designed, or one of those cities. Let me just talk about it a little bit. Here's the main entrance, right here. Here's the main entrance. And the first thing you would run into is the temple. So Alexander the Great said, I'll bring in religion. If I can bring in religion, I can change the world. That's one thing I need to do to change the world. Here is the Cardos. Cardos is the main street. Cardos is one, Decuminus is the other. Cardos runs north and south, Decuminus runs east and west. Cardos was called the broad street, the wide, the broad way. So what does that say? The wide way. Jesus talks about the broad way at the end of the broad way is destruction. And what do you think they had at the end of every broad way? They had a theater. So Alexander the Great said, if I can bring arts and media, I'll bring the theater in, I can change the world. That's the second thing he did. The third thing he said that if I bring in education and change education with the children, I can change the world. And the fourth thing that he did that I think was probably the most dominant one, at least in our era of time, or at least I think they all link together, is sports. He developed sports because sports, the exercise of sports makes strong soldiers. But all sports is gladiatorial. It's to get the best of the other. It's just the opposite from what Jesus taught. It's the opposite from what God taught his children of Israel. It's totally the opposite. So when you play a game of ball or play a game of volleyball, you play to lose, right? Never. You always want to be the best. I want to be number one. This is called Hellenism or New Age. Hellenism says that the most, the most important thing is the brain, is your mind. It's the most, or the human body, excuse me, the human body is the most delicate thing. So they would do their wrestling in the nude. And so you can imagine this being infiltrated in the Jewish culture. It was unbelievable, excruciating. They finally made laws because they didn't want the Jewish boys to be wrestling that were circumcised. This is how gross they were. So they didn't allow the Jewish fathers to circumcise their children anymore. If you circumcised your child, they passed the law. You're gonna, we're going to kill the child and you. So imagine these Jews didn't want this as much as we don't want this stuff either. But it continues to filtrate and filtrate into our churches and filtrate into our churches. And it's shaping us who we are. Let's go on a little bit. I sh and there was, and I'm not sure, I think 137 uh, AD is when there was an earthquake and these cities were all de destroyed. The 10, de de the, the 10 Decapolis cities were all destroyed. Nothing else was destroyed but the 10 cities of the Decapolis. So did God show up? I think he did, at least in that era of time. Here is, now this again, it's going to be hard for you to figure this out, but this is the bathroom. It was a public bathroom. That's the Greek culture. They would all, men and women would be in this bathroom together, and they weren't separated. That was that culture that Jesus came into, that those disciples were living in at that time. Imagine what was going on. It was, a, it was a place, a social place. I like to go in and don't tell people where I'm going and they all sit down on the toilets and then I tell them you're sitting on a toilet. That's, it's, it's amazing. We just don't think of those things 
this world that was so corrupted back in Jesus' time already and before Jesus. Alexander the Great actually was reigning 332 B.C. already. And I know his successors brought all this in. But it was his influence. His influence it was Socrates and, and Plato and uh, I'm not sure the other one. But they were, that's why I get so adamant about our culture sometimes. It's taking us away from the really true meaning of what I think God wants. This is inside the, the theater or a stadium where they would, the, the sports would be done or also where the Christians would die. I don't think they did here. They don't have any, any um, uh, record that anybody died here playing, uh, being killed by the lions, but you can clearly see that these gates were to leave the animals out. Uh, we don't know, did they or did they not, that there was other games they played there. This is a water line, just to tell you, and you know, they were so innovative over there. A water line, these water lines like this, they go for miles. It's, every so often you'll have a hole in the top of one of those stones because these stones fit into each other just like a pipe fits into each other. But they open a cistern way somewhere and they open the, and they gotta have blow holes every so often to let the pressure out so it doesn't blow the pipes apart. But they can move water. They did in ancient times, that's how they moved water. Just to show you another picture of. <clears throat> Going to Jerusalem, this is Jericho. Now you see Jericho there. You see the Jericho Road in the distance here on that side. We're going to go on up to Jerusalem. And just look at the seven feasts a little bit. Look into the city of Jerusalem just a little bit. And imagine yourself now going there. And we like to come up from, we like to come up from Jericho into Jerusalem from the east. Because it's significant that we do. Because we remember when you read in the scripture, a king would always come from the east. So the Jews feel today when the Messiah comes back, this is where I'm standing as the Mount of Olives. This is where the Messiah is going to come down to. He's going to come from the east to Jerusalem. Will it be that or not? I'm, I'm not saying. But let's go inside and visit. This is the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock, which we sometimes get to visit. Sometimes we don't because it's not safe to be there. And then you see the city of Jerusalem in the back. Here is a layout of the city. I'll do it real quick from one side to the other. This was the Temple Mount. So over on this side would be... the the Mount of Olives. Here's the Mount of Olives. Here's the Temple Mount. Then you got the Arab Quarter and the Christian Quarter and the Armenian Quarter and the Jewish Quarter. I'm not, let me just make sure I get this right. The Arab Quarter, yeah, this is the Arab Quarter, the biggest part of it. Then you got the Christian Quarter. The Armenian Quarter is up here. And then the Jewish Quarter is right here and the Western Wall. That's all the Jews have. That's all they have left. And this is all Arab here. And the Christians and the Jews can be in here some, but they have their stores here, the smallest part. Armenians are also part of a Christian. That's the layout of the old city today. And it's still, we'll just show you some pictures how it looks. We're walking down Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem here. So imagine on the Passover, a million people. Josephus says a million or more people would come to the Passover. Just throngs of people. And I, I wish I'd have more time to go into that, into the Passover. So you can imagine Jesus coming here, coming up the Jericho Road for the last time. He stopped in Jericho. Zacchaeus' story is there. He heals the beggar along the road when he's coming up one time. But this, this picture to me here is very real in the time of Jesus. They think this is the main road because they dug down for graves. And this is the only place they can't find graves because you would never take a road over a grave. If you take a road over a grave, it makes you unclean. So they... They think it's here, but it could be somewhere else where he came down. But it was close to here. We know that. And now we're looking back on Mount of Olives, which is not 
filled with that many trees anymore. But here, this picture, I think, uh, this, this is looking, this is on Mount of Olives. I put this in here so you could see the picture of a rabbi with his little disciple or young disciples. See, they're all wearing tzitzit. You can see the tzitzits hanging on them. And it's, it's their desire to be like this rabbi. They want to learn from God. So they're giving their whole heart to be like God, to be like Jesus. We, we are to be like Jesus. So Christians, some Christians wear tzitzit. We have actually one person in our church that wears tzitzit. I struggle with it a little bit because I think he's a little legalistic. But he wants to be like Jesus, he says. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I wear it when I sometimes go to Israel. We wear one to remind ourselves who we are. I'll give each person one tzitzit so we can wear it. And it's a good reminder because I see him there looking at it, and I know they're thinking about what is my life. It's, it, all it is is to remind us. We do things to remind us. And that's what they're doing. And, you know, we go over there and we look at all these religious whatever, and I say, no, no, be careful. Be careful. Let's, maybe this rabbi knows Jesus and he's teaching Jesus to them too. We don't know that for sure. But that's a rabbi with his... And they're, they're dancing and just having a great time. This is looking from the south. When you look at this city, this little part of the city, that's what they call, it was David's city. And I found this picture. It's one of the best pictures I've found. This area is where the Jebusites were when David came and conquered the city. This is the southern, the, the, the temple is up here now, where they, the extension of Solomon's extension was on up here. They're not sure if it was up here where the Temple Mount is or not exactly, but it was up here somewhere. But this, was, this little area was David's city. This is the Kidron Valley. To the east here is the temple, is, is Mount of Olives. And so to the west is, is the city of Jerusalem. This is the model city. And this is the city they think Jesus would have looked at. This is how, or the Temple Mount, how Jesus would have looked at. Beautiful. And I showed you that picture the other night where the Holy of Holies is in, or the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies is inside of there. And the women's court and the men's court and all of that. This is the outer court. So Jesus comes there. And he goes in and, and the one of the Gospels, I think Matthew says he comes in and it's late. Matthew or Mark, it's late. And he goes back out. The next day he comes back and he makes a cord he takes a cord and he goes and chases out these buyers and sellers. Why was God's, Jesus so angry? Well, I think, or the scholars think, some of the scholars think this cord was this. And I tend to think that it was a tzitzit. I don't think he had a cord and goes around whipping them. But I think he took this tzitzit and, and said, you know better than this. You have made this a den of thieves. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And he just had a ball that day. Wouldn't it have been amazing to be there? He took these tables and set them upside down and the money was flying and the, and the doves and the pigeons and all these and I can imagine the bleeding of the animals. And <clears throat> Why did he do it? Well, if you go into history, these, these rabbis were ruthless, ungodly men. And if you would bring your lamb You'd have your own lamb that you raised so that you could sacrifice it for that year to have the Passover. Because you would bring a lamb. That was even in Jesus' time. I think Jesus at the Passover with his disciples had a lamb. I think he did. They ate the Passover. So you eat a, a Passover, you eat the whole lamb like they did in the beginning when he started it. But anyway, you could bring your lamb. And this is history. You bring your lamb, you show the priest, and you have inspected that lamb as being a lamb that is perfect without blemish. The priest looks at it. No, not good enough. I'm not going to let you do it. You've got to buy one from me. That's how they would act. 
And they would rob the people and make tons of money robbing these people. I think that's really what angered God, one of them. The other thing is, this was the Gentile court. Outside this fence was the Gentile court. And that's where they were buying and selling. And they were taking up room in there. Buying and selling was okay outside, but not in here. And so Jesus, I can see Elijah's spirit coming to life. And his eyes were like fire, like the, the Revelation writer says. He had eyes of fire. And they couldn't stand in his way anymore. And he chased them out. Imagine such authority. Here you can get just a view on the inside of it. Here's the Temple Mount. Now this is the model. I have to quickly go through these. This is the lower city, which was the adobe houses. The, the, more, the poor people lived here, like the Essenes were living here. And then we'll move on up to, the, to this part of it. This is where the Sadducees lived. They were t amazing. We were been in a, in a Sadducee house, which is now underground. They have six-foot bathtubs and marble floors and marble walls. You still find it today, 2,000 years ago. These Sadducees lived rich, and we do too today. Our houses are a lot the same. We have three bathrooms for, or four bathrooms for three people sometimes. Everybody has a car. We're living mm, a lot like the Sadducees. I think we gotta be really careful. If you would tell them, you have three bathrooms in your house, they would say, what? That's how the Sadducees would live. That's how the rich man lives. So let's be thankful for what we got and let's use it appropriately. Here is a picture from the west to the south side. This is called the Hinnom Valley. Hinnom, hell. And this is where all the garbage and stuff would be thrown down in the ancient city. Moving on up to the business district. And then we come to the north side, which is the Pool of Bethesda. And I like to think maybe this, this is where actually... This is actually where they did clean up the sheep here. And I don't know, this is the sheep gate. Now, some scholars don't think it is, some think it is. This is the little gate where they would take the sheep in and then they would be here to sacrifice them. I don't know, is it or not? I like to think maybe Jesus went into that gate when he came in and cleansed the temple to tell him that I am the true shepherd. I am the one that's going to be the one you need to follow. Listen to my words. I have truth and all of that. So let's look at the feast really quick here. The first three were Passover. Now, these three were part of Passover. Do we need to know these feasts? Do we need to understand these feasts? On my side, I would say yes. Do we keep the feasts? I would say no. We can. We can enjoy them. If you ever want to do a Seder, get somebody to come and do a Passover Seder for you. You will be amazed. And you, can, you, can, you set up tables. You have a dinner. It's a Passover Seder, meaning it's the order. And we'll have the order of the Seder all the way through. It is so rich in truth. comes all the way up to our heritage today, the Christian heritage. So I think we should celebrate them. One reason I think we should celebrate them because God said it's his feasts. Now, we have a tendency to believe it's just the Old Testament, but it's still his feasts. And I think they reach down to the Christian world. Passover. We know the Passover. Unleavened bread is the evening before the Passover. They would take a grain. They would take their first grain they would use the seeds of that grain and they would put it in the ground saying that in unleavened bread I will plant this seed and it will come up a new seed. So what happened to Jesus? When Jesus died in unleavened bread he was planted. He was put in the tomb. That's an unleavened bread of the Passover. Crucified on Passover died on unleavened bread before the evening of the Sabbath. 
first fruits is the first day of the week. And that's where a lot of, that's where we get our first day of the week to worship on the first day of the week. It comes out of first fruits. That's when Jesus rose up. Now, it doesn't command us to, to worship on the first day of the week. And we talked a little bit about this today. We have the commandment that we are to keep the Sabbath. And so we dialogued a little about that. And I struggle sometimes. Are we keeping the right day? And then on other times I say, you know what? It's important that we keep a day. Paul says every day is the same. So he makes it hard. Not one day is above another. We should have every day the same. So we need to be careful not to, to become legalistic or to become so emphatic about something that we think we need to do it that way. So I'm very careful with that. But first fruits is the first day of the week. Jesus rose on first fruits. Died on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, was raised on first fruits. And we'll come back to that again. Now let's look at the next one. Next one is Pentecost. Fifty days later, Jesus had left. He said, go in and wait, and I will show up again. And then it's Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets, which is, that has not been fulfilled yet, I don't think. The first four have been fulfilled. We know that. But we're waiting on the Messiah to come back. It's Feast of Trumpets. He's going to come back. Are we ready? Sometime in the fall. Now, now you've just crossed the, the, the line saying that you're gonna, you know when he's coming back. No, I know I don't. I don't know. They don't even have a record of when it is in the fall for sure anymore. And I think it's God's doing again. Will he come back in the fall? I think he will. Because that's the Feast of Trump. Why would he fulfill Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, exactly on the days that were, they, had, they kept them for 1,300 years? Pentecost was not a new thing. Pentecost, they celebrated Pentecost. That's why they were in the house. And again, I don't think the disciples were in the upper room anymore. They were now in the house. And they were waiting. And God shows up. And we'll get to that. Then it's Yom Kippur, Feast of Atonement. That's remember what I said about Feast of Atonement. The priest would go into the Ark of the Covenant and put blood on the Ark of the Covenant for, the, for once a year for the atoning of, of the, the sins of, the, of Israel. And then Tabernacles where John 1 comes in and he came and tabernacled around us. Someday we will sit at the, the feast with Jesus with all the saints in the tabernacle in heaven. It's going to happen, brothers and sisters. Are we ready? Those three feasts are all in the fall and have not been fulfilled because we're still here. That's, that's my view on that. Now, there's also four cups that they had at the Passover. And I don't know if you remember this, this, this morning. I gave you these four things here. I will bring you out. I will free you. I'll redeem you, and I will take you. At the Passover Seder, there's four cups of wine that they would drink. And we'll talk about these later. This is how they would recline around the table. Now again, this debunks that Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper. Sitting behind a table, they're old gray-haired people. And remember, disciples are never older than their, their rabbi. Maybe once in history they found a disciple older than a rabbi. So the disciples were young men. Maybe they think John was barely 13 yet, just maybe adolescent. And Peter the oldest, maybe he was 25. So, and you look at this picture that he painted, everything's wrong with it. It's in the daytime, there's sunlight in the back, or there's daylight in the back of the room, and the Passover was never held till after sundown. So everything in that Da Vinci painting, to me, is wrong. But this is how they would recline around. And Jesus here, with the cup, would be the, the second one, as the honored guest would be on that side of the table. And John would be on his right, and Judas on his left. So now you can see what was going on here when you think about the cup and, 
and all of that going on. We need to keep moving. Let's give you a picture of the Western Wall. These, this is how it looks on a Friday night. They're standing up the wall praying. They, they put their little prayers in the slots of the stone. They're standing there praying like this. Some of them, they stand there for a half hour going like this, just praying. It's a motion of reverencing God. And we look at it, and it, it looks, I think, well, they're kind of out of their, but that's how they pray. That's how emphatic they are to know God and to get close to him. You can actually watch this online anytime you want to. And I'm not sure what it is, but I think if you go westernwall.com live, you can watch it here. And when we were there the last time, they knew when we were going to be there. And so I get a text and say, I'm watching you at the Western Wall. So you can't hide anywhere from any place, from anybody anymore, it seems. This picture just intrigued me. It's three generations. I wasn't supposed to take a picture, so I snuck one because it's the old dad sitting there with his son and then the, the old dad's grandson. That's at least what I took as it is. It was just, this is such, it's just a normal picture there in the West. And here's the streets, just the small streets. I'll show you another one here. It's the streets that we, we walk through when we go through Jerusalem, the old city. It's just like it was in Bible times, way back in Bible. It just becomes alive when you're there. So imagine Jesus. He had kept the Passover. He had gone, well, he's going to come back in here. He's, he's gone out. He says he crossed the Kidron. He went out to the garden. And there he became very heavy. Now what happens at the Passover is they drink these four cups. And the last cup is the cup of protection. I will protect you. I will be with you. I will protect you. And that's the cup I think Jesus, that John mentioned. Jesus said, no, I won't drink this cup again until I come again. And you can imagine the disciples because this is a dangerous night. It was called Lyle Shimmerine. The night of watching, Passover night, was called Lyle Shimmerine, which means night of watching. You watch all night. You don't sleep all night. You're watching, anticipating, will God show up? What is going to happen on this night? So Jesus comes out to this garden, garden called Gethsemane. It doesn't call it the Garden of Gethsemane. He says the Mount of Olives. But anyway, they think this is where it's at. It's a beautiful place to go to. And Jesus comes there with his disciples. We know the story. And he goes away with his three disciples, his three chosen disciples that he often takes with him, Peter, James, and John. And then he goes a stone toss away. And he falls on his face and he starts pleading with God. Is, it, is there no other way? Is this the only way? Is this the only way that this can be accomplished? And it says in the meaning that he was sweating drops of blood or as blood. What it means, a sudden shocking awareness came on him. And he was just crushed to the ground. Gethsemane is an olive press. This is what I'm showing you here is an olive press. I'll show you another one. This here has the beams in the back coming out with these like burlap bags where they put the crushed olives in and they press it till there is no juice left in the olives. This is what happened to Jesus that night. He was completely crushed because he found there is no other way. And he came back and he found us sleeping, his disciples. Can you imagine the weight of Jesus? And they weren't catching it. And Peter had just said, we're going to die with you tonight. Jesus said, you're all going to forsake me. Jesus, with, with the 12, said, no, no, we'll all stand with you. We know the story. But I want to focus on Jesus, this cup. What was this cup that Jesus had to drink? As we look at these four cups, and remember I told you the last cup, the cup of protection 
he did not take. So what could this cup be? What could it be? Well, we know that it was a cup that was not an easy cup. I think it was the cup of the wrath of God. Why do I say that? Well, it says in Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus says the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand and cause all nations to whom I send you to drink it. Imagine what we would have if Jesus wouldn't have stilled the fury of God. But he said, I'm willing. I'm willing to take your wrath on me and I'm willing to drink it all. And that night, Jesus drank it all. Every drop of it. He says, not my will, but your will be done. I think that night, Jesus stilled his wrath. Now, I'm not saying there's not judgment after if we refuse to go with him. But I think his mercy and grace was poured out in measures that is just amazing. It's all. He did it all. And so they take him. They take him in. And they crucify him. And we know what what took place. They crucified him. And they did it at night. The trial was done at night. So it doesn't stir up the people because they know they'd have a mess. They'd stir up the people. And I didn't talk much about the sacrifices. But the sacrifices were done every morning and every afternoon. For 1,300 years after God had implemented the sacrifices, he said, do it every morning and do it every afternoon. So Jesus was put on the cross in the morning at 9 o'clock. Just when the morning sacrifice would take place. And so the clock keeps ticking. Now it takes 48 to 72 hours to have a crucifixion victim die. And there's so much in this crucifixion, whole crucifixion thing with the two, the two thieves there. It's, Mark uses as the crowning of a king. The crowning of a king, the king would go up to the, to up the stairs and to uh, Head Hill, that they call it, with two of his elite soldiers. And, and all, of that, all of the things that happened to Jesus would be the crowning of a Roman king as well. Mark, if you follow Mark, it lays it all out. So Jesus was here between the two benefactors. And we know the story and all the, the sayings that go on. And the clock keeps ticking. There's an earthquake. Darkness over the whole land. Imagine being the priest. You know that at 3 o'clock you gotta, you're going to hear this shofar blowing. Maybe Let me just go back and show you the place. The south, this corner. They found a stone at the bottom here that was up there with an indent in it that had an inscription on the place of the blowing and it was broken off there. They think it was said the place of the blowing of, an in, of a shofar because it had a, a place to stand in. And this was in Jesus' time, they think about 200, at least 200 feet high. That's where this shofar would be blown. And at 3 o'clock, at 9 o'clock in the morning, you would hear it. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you would hear it again. And this is the sound. I, I don't have my big one. I hope I can blow this one tonight. I'm almost out of breath, so... It was much better than that. But you would hear that. 
every morning and every afternoon, this eerie sound out in the desert of this shofar, and you know what it meant. And at three o'clock, the shofar was blown. The priest with the lamb.